From ShareProfits.com, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, Episode 9, for the 11th of September, 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifred. Hi, this is indeed Tom Winifred uh, with the ninth edition of Share Profits Radio, brought to you, as we say at the top of the show, from Wales by 30 yards. Uh, a few people have emailed me to ask what I mean by that. Uh, the house I live in, the Welsh Hovel, uh, is an old farmhouse on the banks of the River Dee. Uh, we are in Wales. The River Dee is the boundary between Wales and the old enemy, England. If I walk out of my back door and walk through the farmyard, I come to a small orchard, and at the end of that is the River Dee. Halfway across that, just a few yards, it's rather deep water, and I would be in England. When the river floods, it runs through the orchard, it laps up against the barns, and sometimes it comes into my back garden. It hasn't, in the past 60 years, come anywhere near the house, or hasn't come to the house. Uh, but maybe global warming and all that sort of uh, stuff, uh, we'll see it reach the house one day. So far, so good. I have two guests on the show this week. Uh, one of them is brave enough to admit that he is my friend. Uh, yes, I do have the odd friend in the city, uh, though if one reads the bulletin boards, uh, many people would find that hard to believe. Anyhow, the man has outed himself as one of my few friends and no doubt uh, will face uh, retribution from uh, uh, bulletin board posters as a result. Uh, the other is Carson Block uh, of Muddy Waters, who has shot to fame in uh, the UK with uh, the dossier exposing Burford, uh, but is one of the world's best-known short sellers. I discuss Burford in detail uh, with Carson later, but also uh, a number of aspects of short selling, uh, things that critics uh, attack short sellers for, uh, and weaknesses in the market here in London, the AIM Casino, why it provides such fertile ground for short sellers. My first guest, uh, uh, Anthony Laker, and I also discuss how the city has evolved over the past uh, 30 or 40 years. Anthony started his career in the city in 1980. Uh, my first experience of financial services was on Wall Street in 1986. My suspicion is uh, that about 90% of operators in the London market today have less experience than I do, and only a few have more experience than Anthony does. And that lack of experience of bear markets, of market crashes, of times when you can't get away talking about normalised, adjusted, underlying bullshit earnings and have people believe you, uh, is one of the weaknesses of the current market. We've been in a bull market now for 10 years, and there's an awful lot of folks uh, who are swimming with no trunks, something that will emerge in due course. It is only a matter of when. The big bear raiders, people like uh, Carson Block, can only short stocks of a certain size. Indeed, uh, uh, most stocks on the AIM casino, the AIM cesspit, uh, a phrase I coined, which I'm delighted to see the FT picking up and using just last week. Uh, the majority of companies on the AIM cesspit 
are too small to short. There is no borrow. It is impossible to short them. Naturally, that does not stop the CEOs of these fine enterprises, which will never make a cent of free cash flow uh, in a month, a year, a decade of Sundays. Uh, it doesn't bl- stop them blaming wicked short sellers and bear raiders for the decline in their share price. Uh, the reality is shares in such companies will inevitably gravitate to zero because they will never generate a cent of free cash flow. Therefore, their net present value is less than nothing. If you're getting anything for your shares in this company, you are getting a bargain. Share Profits is an unusual website in that we are prepared to go after these companies. Uh, It is not because our writers are short of the stock. Uh, It is because we are a commercial enterprise and people who want to be warned about stocks on the AIM Casino or the substandard list of the main market. It's called the standard list, but it is pretty substandard. Uh, Subscribe to Share Profits. Uh, We make our money because we provide a valuable service in warning people of the perils of such companies, pointing out companies that tell completely and utterly blatant lies in RNS statements, in official statements to the Stock Exchange, and which people appear to ignore. Uh, They are allowed to get away with telling lies, pointing out where directors are trading shares when they patently shouldn't be trading shares, and sometimes not even bothering disclosing it to the market, and pointing out where companies are engaging in accounting fraud. I hope to have a very big story uh, on one of the biggest stock market frauds of the past 30 years, Uh, in respect of accounting fraud and interesting share trades uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, uh, Watch this space. Uh, I am just getting my ducks in a row uh, with various regulatory authorities. Anyhow, uh, we do not charge companies uh, who are interviewed on this show to be interviewed. I only interview people who interest me. I've had a number of CEOs or their PR men who contacted me asking if I would interview their companies. Truth is, if I'm not interested in the company or if I'm not interested in the CEO, I can't be asked to do any research and so I won't be interviewing them. Uh, We can therefore only provide this radio show to you uh, because of the kind sponsorship of a number of firms who appreciate the service we provide. Uh, today's sponsor is Yorkville Advisors LLC, which provides a range of financing opportunities to smaller companies across the world, principally in America uh, and in Great Britain. People may not like the type of structured finance that Yorkville provides. Uh, it is often described erroneously, I think, as a death spiral. Uh, the reality is that some companies which are unable to attract institutional finance can only uh, attract investment of this nature. There are a number of providers out there. Some of them, frankly, should be shut down with their principles uh, sent to prison, if only for usury. The facilities they provide are guaranteed to screw investors and enrich the providers. Of those providing such a service, I regard Yorkville as pretty much best of breed. Uh, You can find more about them uh, uh, from their own website, uh, yorkvilleadvisors.com. Now, how about I interview my first guest?
Now, my first guest today is Anthony Laker. Uh, he's here in two capacities. The first is that he runs an aimlessly company called Vela, about which he uh, will no doubt enthuse wildly. Maybe not. That's not his style. Uh, the second is that he's uh, been a friend of mine for about a quarter of a century. Gosh, that makes us both feel very old. And he's actually been in the stock market as a stockbroker since 1980 uh, and therefore uh, may have a few observations uh, on the state of the stock market generally and on AIM today. Uh, Al Anthony, welcome to Share Profits Radio. Thank you very much, Tom. It's uh, good to be on here. I've enjoyed the show so far. Looking forward to the main event later with Carson Block, who uh, is very interesting. I came across him in the, the uh, Netflix China Hustle, so it's going to be good. Okay, well, let's let's start with you now. Uh, let's start with Vela. Uh, it is a small company on AIM. Uh, the market cap last time I looked was about 1.7 million. It's an investment company investing uh, in uh, a range of tech-based businesses. And the net assets or the net assets last time I looked were about 2.3 million or 2.4 million. Uh, no doubt you'd argue that uh, there is great potential for those assets to go up. Um, but let's just address the issue of the discount to net assets uh, and why it appears to be quite large. I was going to put you four or five reasons as to why it is large and wonder if you'd comment on each. Uh, the first is you're listed on AIM and people perceive that AIM is a cesspit, a casino. There are a lot of rotten stocks there. And therefore, every company on AIM trades at a discount to fair value. Uh, where that is, there is any value at all. Discuss. Well, I think the problem with AIM is that, um, and in fact, small caps generally, is that they seem to be, uh, companies seem to be looked at these days based on the sort of level of tweeting that goes on in them. And there's very little, in my experience, uh, of investors really wanting to understand the companies they're investing in. They're, they often seem to be very short term. Um, what I've found is that by um, speaking to people who are prepared to take an interest and look under the bonnet and dig around, meet the companies, that so uh, very often they come on board as uh, as shareholders. Um, Would you not accept though that there are a lot of? Uh, go back to your day job as a stockbroker. There are a lot of companies on AIM which are, I might describe them as worthless pieces of crap. You would perhaps be a bit more diplomatic, and that uh, tarnishes the market as a whole. There are eight hundred and forty-seven companies on AIM, uh, and because. Arguably, you know, two or three hundred of them are completely worthless. And we see time and time again companies on AIM uh, lying uh, or at least exaggerating. That tarnishes everybody on AIM. Yeah, I mean, that takes us really on to a subject that you and I have talked about a lot recently. And that is the, the issue of uh, the scandals or whatever we've had recently with uh, relating to auditors. Uh, accounting policies and the such like and uh, I think that has a lot to do with it because um, I think what's happened in effect is that you, know, you look around and you think that actually things have gone a lot tougher there's more regulation um, in actual fact that's had the complete opposite effect because it's allowed companies to play around with the numbers happen. 
much more. I mean, you and I talked about the EBITDA um, term for many, many years now, and, and that's, that's uh, a classic one. EBITDA bullshit earnings, uh, as uh, you and I would refer to them, uh, as Warren Buffett's phrase, but uh, uh, we would both agree with that. Is I mean, Given all of that, uh, Keshra's Paribus, if you were to list Vela tomorrow and be given the choice of AIM or uh, the upper Volta stock exchange, wouldn't you be kind of tempted to go with the latter? I think, um, I think you'd probably expect me to say this. I kind of look on Vela as slightly different. I mean, in terms of our discount, to assets, you've got to remember that um, we hold pretty much all of our stock, uh, or a lot of our stock, uh, at book value. So, um, in some cases, the, the the value of the holdings is somewhat more than actually uh, is shown in the, in the balance sheet. And with the companies we've got, what's going to happen is that that. Um, if they do come through, and, and, and you know, one needs a lot of patience with these types of companies. They start from effectively a, a blank sheet of paper. Um, and if these companies come through um, and deliver and they scale, they're worth a lot more than they are in the balance sheet right now. So I wouldn't really class Vela uh, in, in the same way as you might be looking at other businesses on AIM who are perhaps trading businesses. I don't think we're comparable in any way, shape or form. Okay, let's go then to a second question. Is, isn't Vela one of the problems that you are subscale? Uh, uh, you're just too small. If you've got net assets of 2.3 million or whatever it is, uh, if you make uh, 10% a year, and I accept that, as a veteran stockbroker, you should be able to outperform the market. Maybe you can make 10% a year. The costs of being on AIM will suck up at least half of that. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the, the costs are, are an issue. We've, we've got very, very low costs. So we, we, do, we do quite well on, on that front. But yes, I mean, we're, we're, by you know, investing in Vela, uh, you're investing in a portfolio. Um, and what we hope is that with patience that um, three or four of the companies that we have is we've got a dozen companies in total three or four of these companies may well come through and um, probably the three or four that i'm thinking of individually could be worth a substantial amount of the current market cap um, or perhaps somewhat more than the market cap on their own so it's uh, it, 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 you kind of have to play it like that. As I say, you can't look at it in the same way as you would look at a trading business and say, well, this company's not making very much money and therefore it can't warrant being, being on AIM. There is a more general point then about AIM companies, even trade, a trading businesses or investment businesses, though. Though you are very frugal, certainly in terms of boardroom pay, and uh, uh, you and I look at enough reporting accounts on companies on AIM where... That is not the case. There are costs like the nomad, uh, the broker. You have to pay these people a retainer for doing sweet FA in many cases. I mean, some of the some of the fees charged by nomads and brokers is obscene. Um, uh, ours is something we can live with, just about. <laughs> <laughs> But some of the, it is, the idea, I'm just to slightly digress off Vela for a second, yeah. the idea that you have to pay a retainer to a broker 
seems to me ludicrous because the brokers who exist on AIM and uh, maybe uh, uh, First Equity, your employer is different, but most of them to me do absolutely nothing. They don't put out research or if they do, it's written by, you know, a two-year-old or my cat or someone. It's, it's pointless research. Uh, they don't help the company deal with any stock overhangs. They don't go out and promote the stock. They don't do what brokers used to do in uh, the good old days. They do nothing. They just bank the fee and hope the company's going to do a placing when they can take their 5% for making a few phone calls. And you missed you miss one point there, and that is that quite often it actually isn't the broker that, does, that actually earns the money out of the company uh, from raising funds because very often... Um, whoever your broker is, uh, you get approached by all sorts of people offering to raise money for you. Um, and you're, you're, you're the broker who you paid a retainer to um, will not even sometimes participate. Um, and they, those uh, 5% fees or whatever go elsewhere. Do you think there is a case for saying that companies should not need a retained broker on AIM? Since the broker does, it doesn't do anything in terms of regulation. Uh, it can put its name to a release, which is complete fantasy. The broker doesn't have to verify it. The nomad is meant to, although they don't clearly don't all the time. There is no point in companies having a retained broker. That should be scrapped and well, save money for companies. Our nomad certainly does verify it. Um, we're really tough on that. Uh, they do. They, they verify, and the companies always verify as well. We never put out anything without the company approval. But in terms of the broker, couldn't agree with you more. Anthony, um, most of your investments within Vela are in unquoted stocks. Do you think that in the wake of the Woodfords affair, where we've had this drip, drip, drip of revelations about valuations that were simply not justifiable, uh, and I'm sure there are a lot more still to come, uh, and also, in the wake of, uh, you know, we've seen uh, the recent uh, proposed IPO of WeWork, the valuation slashed from $47 billion to $20 billion, and I gather it might now be pulled altogether, that people are somewhat sceptical about the valuations of uh, private companies that may or may not one day go public. Well, I think anyone investing in any, any of Woodford's funds would have uh, should have seen all this coming a long a long time ago. Uh, I wouldn't imagine that any of them, the uh, investors in Woodford Fund, have actually looked at in detail of what he was actually buying. So it's really down to him, and they're putting their trust in him. In the case of someone like like us, as I sort of mentioned earlier on, um, you know, we, we're accessible. If if someone came along and said you know, we'd like to understand a lot more about what you've got. They're very welcome to come along and, you know, introduce them to the companies and let them sort of go under the bonnet and understand the companies. Um, and I think that most of the market seems to work on the former um, because private investors are trusting other people that they've done, they've done the work. And um, clearly, in a lot of cases, that's, uh, that's not, been, uh, not been the case. Do you not think we were at the end of a uh, bull market, which has now lasted 10 years or something, and certainly not only within the equity markets, but more, more particularly perhaps in the private equity markets, uh, the non-listed uh, companies, there have been ludicrous overvaluations. Wouldn't the time to be 
investing in a company like Vela to be at the bottom of the cycle, not at the top of the cycle. Well, that's why we haven't invested in, in anything new this year, um, because the valuations around, around from what we've seen, opportunities we've seen have been um, way too high. Um, I mean, I could, that, that, that could well be an argument. I mean, in the case of the sort of three or four companies, which uh, I think sort of seem to be standing out at the moment in, the, in our portfolio, um, they're, they're on their way. The businesses are heading in uh, the right direction. So I think if I was going to be starting a business at this stage, I think I might have a different view to these ones, which were started anything from maybe a couple of years ago up to four or five years ago. Would it be fair to say then that with you not having made any investments so far this year, what you are actually now looking to do is to tap into that uh, 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 irrational exuberance, uh, we might say in a different context, and actually start seeing some of your companies uh, realise value with uh, trade sales or possibly IPOs? Well, that's we've, we've said, we've, we've been open about that. Of course, we would like to um, realise um, some of our investments, if only to put a marker down um, to demonstrate um, what the value value might be. Um, but I think also, you know, there, there are opportunities uh, out there, and I think possibly there are opportunities within the quoted market um, for where, where I, you know, work that we've done is indicating we can find companies which do seem to be uh, considerably undervalued. So it's another area that we can we can have a look at going forward, and we are looking at now. When you say we, who is we? Um, it would be uh, the two of us on the board, uh, and also we have um, contacts, um, sizable shareholders. Um, a lot of it is uh, is is uh, it comes from you know a small group of people, but with a very wide. Uh, contact base and uh, you know our contacts know what we're what we're looking for and remind me how many companies is Vela invested in to any material extent the total is 12 the material event um, probably um, set, well it depends what you mean by material maybe seven six seven eight so and, and, and that you think is a manageable size portfolio for the team you have. And one of the criticisms of Woodford is, of course, that he was invested in, uh, you know, well over 100 stocks uh, across his funds. And he didn't necessarily have the team, uh, uh, the team didn't have sufficient time to do due diligence. Well, the difficulty is that, you know, when you're investing, even within, let's say, within tech, let's say, and he's investing elsewhere, but within tech, there are so many subdivisions within technology um, to have that level of, if you like, local knowledge about that subsector is quite difficult um, to find anyone who's going to be able to cover everything. So what we do is we, we try and apply our general knowledge. We like to co-invest and we've got a number of, you know, reputable, you know, sensible shareholders who've also done work on the companies they've invested and we've invested alongside them. But sure, you know, if we had a, we, we couldn't possibly have a, a portfolio of that, of that size because we just simply wouldn't have the, the, the knowledge um, across such a wide range of uh, companies and industries. 
Anthony, uh, we touched there on uh, Neil Woodford uh, and uh, the effect he's had on the whole smaller companies market in the UK. Uh, I am pretty damning on Neil Woodford and, and think it is going to end in tears and he's done a lot of things which are terribly, terribly wrong. And in fact, I think he should go to prison. Um, you're going to be a little bit more polite than me, but how do you think it is going to end and what is the impact going to be on the wider smaller companies market? Well, I suppose the first thing is it's difficult to believe that uh, this has been going on now for some time. Um, anyone in the financial services business where there's any question about um, about what they're doing or how they're going about it would be asked to step aside. Um, and for this to carry on for this length of time is just quite unbelievable. Um, to be clear, you think he should be, the FCA should be saying, you really can't try and manage your way out of it. Someone else has got to have a go. Absolutely. And that's what the company have, um, now, are now suggesting, isn't it? That's, that's exactly what the, the company are actually doing. The Woodford Patient Capital Trust, but there's the, the bigger issue of uh, his two unit trusts, which uh, continue to lose money for investors, uh, and one of which is gated, the other which sees redemptions on a daily basis. Is Woodford the man to get the, them out of the hole they're in? Probably not, and um, and probably with, with each good piece of stock he might sell, it makes it more difficult to it makes the value of what's left less each time, because you, you know there's more more likelihood of redemption, isn't there? It just carries on. It's a, a, a ever it's a spiral spiral down. When if if the equity income fund, which is now worth just over three billion. Uh, comes back from suspension, it's ungated, what percentage of people do you think will be heading for the exit? Who knows? I'm pretty sure it would be pretty high. So in order for it to come back from suspension to be ungated, what sort of, uh, what percentage of the fund do you think the FCA would insist would be in either cash or FTSE 100 stocks? Well, it's, it's going to have to be a very high percentage, isn't it? For that, and that's why it's not going to happen. 60, 70, 80%? Easily. Uh, to transform a portfolio which has got at least 700 million quid's worth or uh, to, to, uh, at least 600 million, 20%, 25% in completely illiquid or unquoted investments, uh, he can't leave that in the portfolio. It couldn't be 80% in cash and blue chips and the rest totally untradeable because there's a danger that after a few weeks, all that will be left is the untradeable junk. I, I, I don't see how he gets out of this. Do you think that he will be managing money on a professional basis this time next year? He shouldn't be. That's not what I asked. Do you think he will be? I don't think so, no. Because I think that um, the, the, that there will have to be some changes. The pressure must surely come on. You know, if it's not tomorrow, next week, next month, it's just very, very difficult to believe that he can be allowed to carry on um, in this way. Okay, I mentioned earlier that you you were my friend. I don't tell anyone because obviously I've got a reputation for being completely friendless to preserve. Well, I know uh, you're your friend. Don't worry, I know that. 
Okay, all right. Uh, but you've been in the market a little bit longer than me. I first uh, encountered financial services in 1986. You started in 1980. Um, how many of the people who, when you first started working in the city, uh, are still there? Very, very few. Um, I uh, attended a, a gathering, must be 18 months ago, of a firm that I worked for uh, around the late 80s. And um, there was virtually no one still working in the city. And that's a combination of different, different reasons. Some, you know, went through some good times and called it a day. Some moved out of the industry. But quite a lot of people who, um, whose role was no longer uh, there and, uh, and, and actually had to leave the city. But uh, the answer is very, very few. And I know that's uh, the case among a number of other people that I know. Who, uh, who literally do not know anyone that's in the city now that was in was there, you know, when you know 20, 30 years ago. I, I, even I, and I'm I'm a few years younger than you. I struggle to uh, think of very many of my peers when I started uh, who are still working in the city. And when I when I walk around and I go to events, uh, I keep on thinking of the phrase "young man, young lady." Very most of the people who work in the city are really very young, aren't they? Or a large yeah, number of them. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty scary how 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 young how young they are. But um, you know, it's uh, it, 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 it's led to the way the market is today. I think it's a function of that. So there's a lot of people uh, around who've uh, only uh, experienced this last 10, 11 years of a market going up. Um, they've not really had a, a rounded experience of how markets can behave going up and going down. Um, it's going to be interesting when things do turn down, as inevitably they will do, how people are going to, uh, to be able to deal with that, um, particularly on things like interest rates um, and debt. It, it's going to be very interesting and it could be very, very bad. I, this thing about interest rates, I, I have conversations with uh, young people, and uh, I remember paying on my mortgage, uh, interest rates were in double digits. And I say, you know, this can happen again. And they say, no, interest rates are always this low. And actually, for an awful lot of people, uh, that is the only interest rate environment they know. You have to be, to be, to, to have experienced double digit interest rates. You have to be, um, as, a, as a consumer, you have to be my age. You have to be in your 50s. Well, th I think the very, very long-term interest rate, average interest rate, is something like 7%, if I recall correctly. Um, but I, I, it doesn't even need to go to 7%, let alone double, double, double digits. Even an interest rate of 3 4% is going to make an enormous impact on people's, people's lives. It's going to make an enormous impact on people's lives. It is also going to make an enormous impact if you add two or three percentage points to the interest bill of an awful lot of corporates who have borrowed, not necessarily to invest in new machinery, often to for the pointless exercise of share buybacks. Yeah, again, a subject we you and I have talked about before. I mean, balance sheets are getting are disappearing or have disappeared very fast, and effectively it's uh, engineering up earnings by reducing the number of shares in issue. Um, it's difficult to believe that 
so-called very bright people around the city are completely unaware of this. But that's, that, that is the point that we're sort of going to. There are relatively few analysts out there uh, uh, in, I mean, fewer analysts for various reasons, but there are relatively few sell-side or buy-side analysts who are older than me, uh, and certainly even fewer who are older than you, uh, who, can, who can remember interest rates which were 3 or 4% higher than they are now, but also who have experience of, there are still quite, maybe quite a lot have, maybe 60% of the people in the city or 50%, can remember the bear market of the financial crisis. But I wonder how many can live through the bear market after the dot-com boom? How many can remember the 1998 crash, long-term capital management? And how many remember the stagnation of the early 90s when we first met, when things just did nothing for years? I think the answer is, is very, very few. As you say, and when I go to meetings and company lunches and that sort of thing, I turn up there and... Uh, they say, hello, Grandpa. <laughs> Not quite, but uh, it's getting worryingly close. And do, do you think that, that uh, the combination of easy money, quantitative easing, etc., and the naivety of the sell and buy side analysts explains why people are so tolerant of fraud bullshit earnings, adjusted bullshit earnings, adjusted normalised bullshit earnings, etc.? Well, I don't think they think it's uh, it's not normal. I think they think it's normal. Um, you know, when you and I started, we had revenue, profit before tax, profit after tax, and a dividend, and earnings per share. It was pretty simple. So I don't think that a lot of people think that, that what's going on now is in any way abnormal. And that's the big problem, because this is, this is, you know, this is the problem that is going to come out when, or if, with and when, um, analysts realise that, uh, that, that, um, uh, that they realise that these are not correct earnings. And it's coming, you know, it's coming slowly but surely, these things are coming out. There is a, there is a remarkable tolerance I find of, uh, I think IQE being a case in point, of people buying into the story of this company's got earnings per share, even when they generate absolutely no free cash flow. And uh, in a bull market, people tend to overlook that little problem. But when things get a bit tough, you think that it's going to be a nasty wake up for a lot of people. Yeah, what you're seeing at the IQE share price at the moment, as you are in, um, in other companies, I mean, Cash is the, I mean, cash really is king. So, um, and, uh, you know, as I said earlier, the, the, this issue with EBITDA and other accounting policies, which has changed the way in which companies report results. I mean, often they're reporting three, four different profit figures in their accounts, which is, if you think about it, completely bizarre because they're having to comply with, with different parts of the accounting uh, rules. So this is where this is where uh, it's going. So this is just going to to carry on in this way, and then you know it's like this thing: nothing matters until everything matters. Right. And so when will everything people matter? People are ignoring because... this at the moment, but at, at some point it will become an important issue. 
But you, you say at some point, uh, listeners don't need to know this, but I think probably you and I have been saying for the past three or four years, this is insanity. How can people buy into this bullshit? Surely uh, it's got to end. The era of easy money has got to come to a close. But actually, it's not. It's just going to carry on and on and on. Yeah, I mean, three and four years, three or four years is nothing, though, Tom. These days, I mean, you can't look at you know times when when things were when things are tough, um, or when things you know certainly when things are tough, everything seems such a long time to take a long time. But three or four years is really nothing in in the scheme of things. So, do you believe that uh, somehow uh, uh, the Orgean stable of uh, easy money, crooked uh, uh, earnings, crooked reporting, fraud. Do you think it somehow it, it has to, it will end or will it just carry on forever? And if it's going to carry on for, if not ever, for a while, shouldn't we just carry on buying into this story? I think, you know, Tom, you've just got to be really, really selective. So you avoid the likes of these companies who are not generating cash. Um, if you're going to invest in the stock market, that's the only really only way to do it, to invest on a medium and long-term basis uh, on companies that are generating cash. Um, I think that's the only way to do it. And of course, that was uh, doing just that was uh, what made Neil Woodford such a great investor uh, uh, 30 years ago. Of course. <laughs> now, one other thing, the city has changed dramatically. Uh, since uh, the 1980s when we first got involved. Uh, I was listening to Luke Johnson give a talk a little while ago, and, and he said, you know, Tom bangs on about how crooked AIM is and how crooked the city is. But actually, it's nothing like what it was in the 1980s. In the 1980s, uh, you know, everybody genuinely did believe that insider dealing with investments and everything else was pure speculation. Stockbrokers would book trades, and if they went well, they'd book them for their own account. If they went badly, they'd stuff their clients. Uh, the city was much more corrupt in the 80s than it is now. Is that not the case? The city was a, was a lot, lot smaller then. It was a real, it was quite a small um, club. It's, it's very, very different now. Um, I think the level of, um, of accountability through trade reporting, um, the stock exchange are very quick to um, call brokers up if they see something not right. I mean, that doesn't mean there aren't things that, that go on that aren't right. Um, but uh, it's actually quite difficult to do it this day, these days without uh, someone knocking on, your, knocking on your door. So the city itself, there is less, you'd say, less insider dealing uh, certainly that thing of booking trades, that doesn't happen anymore. Would you say there's less insider dealing now than there was in the 80s? I think as long as you have people involved talking, you know, people have to talk to each other on various uh, transactions. So I think you can't rule that uh, out 100%. But I think generally speaking, I sense that there is a, uh, a lot less on that front. And it's been replaced by what goes on with companies and accounts, which is, you know, what we've talked about already. Okay, so uh, we've, we've established that maybe the city itself is less corrupt. But you and I talk, uh, you know, once a week or whenever. 
I must be a worse client because I trade so infrequently. But uh, we talk about things where companies put out a bullish trading statement up to the end of May, and I'm thinking of one company in particular. Directors sell, sell loads of uh, 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 shares in June and July, and then we discover a couple of months later that trading for the, to the end of June was actually way below expectations. And also where companies put out blatant lies, and I think we've touched already on the, the fraudulent accounting. That has got much worse, hasn't it? The fraudulent accounting or, or the... Uh... The fraudulent accounting, uh, the companies putting out misleading trading statements, directors trading on the back of that, uh, companies telling just blatant lies in RNSs. Well, I think I think that one your company you're talking about is one of uh, two or three, I think, where we've talked about where there's been a rather long delay between direct to sale um, and actually reporting of that sale. Um, now, uh, that's that's clearly um, quite a serious breach, whether you're aim listed or not, because uh, certainly on aim. Um, you would be required to, to report that Im immediately. And actually, you'd be looking to get um, the go-ahead from fellow directors stroke nomad or hand nomad uh, before you did it anyway, in which case it would definitely be reported almost immediately. Purchases but, or sales. No, in this particular case, I think we're talking about a different company. Uh, oh, hell, let them sue me. Uh, Altitude. Uh, they put out a bullish trading statement up to the 28th of May. Uh, the uh, directors sold 2 million quids worth of shares in June and July. We were told early September that trading for the six months, the end of June, was way below expectations. Uh, that, to me, just doesn't ring true. How can trading have fallen off a cliff in a one-month period? How can the guy have been allowed to sell shares during that period? I know. Well, you know, the FCA should come down on them very, very hard. It's not the first time, probably won't be the last, but the FCA need, need to act in that case. But we, they don't, and they don't act. We've seen companies which have just told blatant lies. We swap RNSs in the morning. Ho, 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 this is a blatant lie. And nothing happens about that. Uh, forget about the dodgy accounting. These are just sort of simple crimes, and nothing happens. Well, like I said, you know, I think it's just become easier people can get away can get away with it um, and I think that until there comes a time when uh, you know that uh, the FCA the authorities come down or someone really hard it's just going to continue is it perhaps just a symptom of the fact that we're in a bull market so people say oh yeah okay so this director didn't do the right thing or okay so they committed a bit of fraud but it was a long time ago Okay, so that RNS wasn't true, but heck, we're all making money, so who cares? Well, I guess that could be could be part of it, but um, I think the share prices then go on to reflect what's what's gone on, and those companies tend to be in the doldrums for a very very long time. What is your solution? Because the FCA would say, "Oh, we just need to have more regulation." Roger Lawson says we need to have new rules. Uh, and people say the, you know, the FCA needs more money, etc. Is that the answer, or is there a simpler solution? Uh, yeah, the simple solution is, uh, is use the rules that are there, because the rules are pretty tough. I have to go through them uh, every single year, reviewing it, whether uh, with my broking hat on or with the Vela hat on, 
with our nomad, we have to go through the rules every single year and sign off and and say that we understand what the rules are. So the rules are definitely there. But people get away with breaking them. It's incredible. When will that end? Well, it, it won't, as I say, until until the FCA acts um, and and uh, you know company directors realise that they cannot get away with this. I mean, my solution, as you know, is that you just start uh, not quite publicly executing, but career executing people, both directors, but also the nomads and, and others who enable it. They have to be put out of business. And once you start kicking a few people out of financial services in a very public way, that, I believe, would change behaviour. Well, absolutely. I mean, all the records are there uh, of, what, of what goes on, emails, telephone calls all recorded. Every, 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 everything is accountable and shouldn't, it should not be difficult to, to uh, administer um, the rules. Um, as I say, they are very clearly there. I've just um, signed a load of rules today, as it happens, for, with my broking hat on. And uh, recently we, went, we ran through the rules with our nomad. Um, so it's the only, only way is for the FCA to, to come down on someone and then come down on another one. And after it happens a few times, maybe it will reduce the possibility of it happening again. But I guess it will always come, you know, it, there's, there's no solution to solve it 100%. Because people will think they can get away with it. Mm. Do you despair? Do you think about retirement and just think it's a wicked old game? <laughs> I probably still love it too much. Do you feel that um, as we get that perhaps you and I are just dinosaurs and we live in a bygone age and actually the, you know, the mood music has moved on? Yeah, I think I called you a dinosaur before you called me a dinosaur, actually. And that's because I didn't understand this blockchain and Bitcoin nonsense, yeah. But uh, uh, in a sense, do you feel that we're both dinosaurs and it's just a new, it's just new, new rules, i.e. there aren't any, and we should just live with it? Yeah, I think we have just got to live with it. We've got no choice. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you try and move with the times. You do the best that you can. But, um, you know, there, there, comes a, there does come a point where I guess some people say, I just can't, you know, I can't cope with this with the world as it is. <laughs> well, don't go retiring yet because someone's got to execute my four trades a year. Yes, I know. Um, I'll be waiting for the next one. Okay, don't hold your breath. Thank you very much for your time. We'll speak again soon. All right, Tom. Good to talk. Take care. Bye. Well, I hope you found that interesting. I sense that perhaps Anthony was a little guarded in what he said about the city, about corruption and about lies on the A market and the standard listings on the main market. Uh, he's perhaps a little bit more forthcoming in the emails and the chats we have uh, off microphone. Uh, it's a little unnerving for some people who are not used to it uh, to speak uh, to a microphone and to an audience of thousands of people, particularly when you live in a world of hyper-regulation, which is what uh, brokers do today. It's one reason, by the way, why so few of them say anything interesting. They're terrified of being slammed by their compliance department or berated by corporate clients. 
I did find it interesting. There is this assumption uh, that today uh, the city is more corrupt and wicked than it has ever been. And sure, there are monumental excesses, things which give capitalism a bad name. But the city before Big Bang, uh, the events of 1987, was a totally corrupt place. At that point, uh, the process of corruption was stockbrokers, essentially stealing money from their clients. What happens today is rather different. Uh, Stockbrokers don't make a vast amount of money. Some investment banks do make a large amount of money. But there is still a net transfer of wealth. The transfer of wealth, though, doesn't go from ordinary retail brokers, uh, from customers of ordinary retail brokers, to those retail brokers. The transfer of wealth goes from shareholders in companies to boards who are often grossly over-remunerated, and in many cases uh, certainly have a remuneration package which bears no resemblance to the returns uh, uh, which shareholders enjoy, but also to a range of parasites, uh, other advisors, the lawyers, the accountants, uh, the nominated advisors on the A market, the financial advisors, companies on the standard list. Uh, Those are the people who enjoy the fat living, and it is all paid for by shareholders. Actually, we have a reminder of that for the AIM Casino, uh, the market which attracts, quite rightly, the anger of so many people. We have a reminder of that coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, Each year in October, there is a giant party, the AIM Awards Dinner. And at this party, there will be about 1,200, 1,500 people who are largely advisors to companies on the AIM Casino uh, who will pay 200 quid a ticket. And they will invite along corporate CEOs, finance directors in an attempt to ingratiate themselves with those people uh, and get more business. Uh, well, ticket doesn't, of course, include champagne and drinks. Uh, they're on top. It's a monumental event. And at this dinner, they hand out awards to the best performing company, uh, the greatest entrepreneur of the year, uh, the best use of technology, etc., etc. If you go back through the history of the awards, you'll see some right old dogs turned up to be winners. Companies that engaged in wholesale fraud were recognised for their achievements to the AIM community. You may think that's obscene enough, but of course, who is it who pays for this extravaganza? Ultimately, it is shareholders. Uh, The tables are all booked by advisors. The advisors charge their bloated fees to companies, and the companies pay those bloated fees. Very rarely uh, do they pay out of retained earnings. Uh, Instead, they pay out of money that they have raised in fundraisings which the advisors have advised on and helped arrange and have charged big fees and big commissions for arranging. Ultimately, therefore, the cost of this event is paid for by companies, whether it is companies raising money in the market or, in the odd case, companies generating a profit, uh, but handing, uh, 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 but which would make more profit if they didn't have to pay the bloated fees of the advisors. So in two or three weeks' time, it will be, I know it's a month's time, the annual AIM Awards will be held uh, at London's Billingsgate Conference Centre, a former fish market, uh, as the advisors, as the companies, swirl the champagne. Just remember who's paying for it. It's you. 
thank you for listening once again to Share Profits Radio Edition 9. Uh, if you're listening on your phone, why not register with iTunes and you'll get the next issue of Share Profits Radio. I'm not certain who my guests will be, but I can promise you they'll be controversial and forthright in their views. Certainly I do have that Gabriel Grego fellow uh, who exposed Globo uh, and uh, Folly Folly. Uh, and a number of other companies. He'll be up in the next two or three weeks and have a few other controversial guests as well. So why not register with iTunes to get the show downloaded automatically uh, to your phone? Uh, the show is free to listen, as will all be all future shows. Uh, that is possible thanks to the kind sponsorship, in this case, for this edition of the show, of Yorkville Advisors, who provide alternative funding arrangements to smaller companies in the United States, in the UK, and indeed around the world. Uh, you may not like uh, this type of funding, uh, but the alternative to structured funding, uh, equity, convertible into debt, etc., uh, is usually a hugely discounted uh, 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 placing uh, to city spivs who then flip on the stock uh, operated by some of the city's most disgusting bucket shops. And I'm sure the same is true in the United States as well. Uh, there are a number of companies providing such fine funding. As I said earlier, uh, a good number of them uh, are run by individuals who I believe should be in jail uh, for usury uh, and if not for outright deceit in revealing the terms of their funding. Uh, Yorkville, I think, is best of breed. And if you're interested in its services, you can find out more about it at yorkvilleadvisors.com. Now, my next guest. Well, he's been in the headlines quite a bit recently. My main guest this week is Carson Block, who runs an outfit called Muddy Waters. Uh, if you're a follower of Burford, you certainly have heard of Muddy Waters. Uh, Carson published a dossier two or three weeks ago, which has caused the share price to crash. Notwithstanding Burford putting out a detailed rebuttal, Carson responding, then putting out another rebuttal, another response. Uh, the jury is at best very much out. Carson, are you doubting for a minute that you're right about Burford? No, we're uh, we're not doubting. Um, I mean, it's when you're in our business, you don't want to have doubt when you publish, certainly because it's a be very dangerous business to be in if you did it while uh, you know having doubts. But there's been nothing in their responses that makes us believe that you know, that we're wrong. I mean, it, I think the responses and to be fair, I think you can characterize a lot of it as non-responses. Um, I think they've avoided getting into a, much of the substance. Um, you know, that strengthen, if anything, strengthens our conviction in our thesis. It, um, one of your critics and his name will feature in this podcast uh, a critic of mine as well, so, so we're in the same boat, a gentleman called Roger Lawson in the United Kingdom from a site called Share, uh, something called ShareSock, which purports, uh, purports, I stress, to represent individual shareholders. Uh, um, uh, Mr. Lawson has pointed out that you don't always get it right. What percentage of your bare dossier reports would you characterise as getting it right? Well, so first of all, I think that there's a difference between 
getting something right, uh, but the stock going in the direction that you want it to go in. So if we're talking about the stock going in the direction we want it to go in, I think look, this is very ballpark off the top of my head. I think about 70% of the time um, in the nine plus years since we've been doing this, um, the stock is the stocks are down versus when we shorted them. And that is in a massive, that's during a massive bull market that we've had over the past 10 years. Now, um, you can look at uh, something like American Tower, which we shorted in July of 2013, and say, well, that's up quite a bit. And, you know, one of our, uh, and I think the American Tower was some of the best research we've ever done. And we found that from a single tower portfolio purchase in Brazil, approximately $250 million worth of money had been taken improperly and that the accounts uh, did not reflect this. Now, people might look at it and say, well, the stock went up. Yeah, the stock went up, but we weren't wrong. We were right. And um, so what we do, the basis of what we do is we look backwards. So companies publish information, and we ask the following three questions. Is the information accurate slash true? Uh, is the information uh, materially complete? Uh, and is the information being properly understood by the market? And if we can answer no to any one of those three questions, there's something for us to do. But when we're looking backwards and we're talking about what has or has not happened, I mean, these are facts, it's hard to be wrong. So when I say to people, no, we're not wrong, we haven't been wrong, a lot of times they are surprised because they're confusing being right, being wrong versus the stock going in the direction in which we want it to go. So because we're backward looking and we're not usually, you know, it's very rare that we say, okay, so we think this is what will happen, X, Y, Z. We're just saying, looking backward, this is what did really happen or did not happen. This is how the companies misrepresented that, concealed it or lied about it, or this is what shareholders don't accurately understand about it. That's why we're, we're not wrong, even if the stock goes up when we're short. Do you think the fact that you've been operating in uh, a crazy bull market where people will say, yeah, so what? There was a bit of fraud back then, but it was a few years ago. And uh, look at the earnings forecast from Goldman Stanley or Morgan Sachs. Uh, the stock's cheap. Uh, it doesn't make your life easy when people have that mentality, is it? Yeah, it's a double-edged sword because with the type of market that we're in right now, there's so much excess. So with all the managements that have been getting away for years with aggressive accounting, um, aggressive transactions, self-dealing, fraud even, that breeds more of that because it's such a permissive environment. So you have a proliferation of bad actors. You also have higher valuations attached to these companies than you did at the outset of the bull market. So from that perspective, it's a target-rich environment. But what you alluded to is the is the flip side of that coin, which is there's so much complacency among investors and that sometimes I feel like the attitude of investors is like, well, well, it's a fraud. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll make numbers. Um, <laughs> you know, like 
I, you know, what could be more reliable than, you know, fraud? So it is this weird, it's this weird environment, but I think it just goes to show that even in an environment which people remember that stocks can go down and that risk is something that you should worry about as opposed to laugh about, um, you know, the, you don't have as many, you don't have as many targets. So it's, it's never going to be an ideal environment, um, from the perspective of a short seller or an active short seller. Do you, in terms of that, that market environment, the macro features, uh, the complacency, I, I would also sort of add uh, the, the naivety of investors, so many of whom can't actually remember a pronounced bear market. Uh, what do you think, uh, does it matter to you about that? Would it be helpful for you if the mood music changed? And what will prompt a change in the mood music? Well, grass is always greener on the other side. So, yeah, there are a lot of days we lament that, um, you know, investors just don't seem to care. Um, but um, then, you know, like I said, I mean, and on the other hand, we, we have this environment where just, you know, we look around and there are all these companies with market caps well north of one billion U.S., that are completely unworthy of, you know, where they trade and investors trust. So um, the grass is always greener on the other side. I mean, what makes it change? Um, look, you know, and you get, go back to December and, I mean, look, some, somebody on the Fed Board of Governors, you know, farts out of turn and, and the market pukes. Um, I think that's probably what makes a turn. Um, and... You know, we've, I mean, we've, look, we've seen that December tells us that the markets are not healthy. They're still incredibly driven by uh, monetary policy. And I mean, right now, monetary policy is moving in the wrong direction from the perspective of short sellers. But I think that it just will breed more excess. And um, we're never going to be in, a, in an environment where we say this is perfect. And keep in mind that those of us who are short sellers, especially activist short sellers, tend to be somewhat pessimistic people anyway. So even when things are good, we're going to look at the glass as being half empty. Do you have a view on the market? Do you expect, or do you just, uh, like, I take the view that we have seen so much excess, so the answer to that is going to be more excess, and uh, uh, the bubble will just keep on getting bigger, uh, and it is impossible to call the end of that bubble expansion. Uh, do you do you take a different view? No, I don't. I, I I'm fully in the camp of it's impossible to call the end of the the bubble expansion. Um, I mean, there you know there are reasons sometimes to believe that additional monetary loosening will not have the profound impact on asset prices that it did um, coming out of the financial crisis. But who knows? Um, it really, I you know I used to think about that say, in the earlier days of my business and, you know, when the financial crisis was still something that people, you know, thought about or, you know, felt like they'd heard about at one time. But um, now yeah, I, at, at this point, at this point, no, I just, uh, it's not something where I really think it, you know, there's any way of, of predicting that. Okay, well, let's talk about the, the stock at the moment, uh, uh, which, of course, is Burford. Uh, what attracted you to Burford as a short? Apart from the crazy valuation, the aggressive accounting, the management not being completely transparent, etc. Um, well, 
level three fair value gains comprising a substantial portion of income is always going to be something that gets our antennae up. Um, you know, we've, we've had experiences with companies like this in the past in terms of the, uh, the fair value accounting. Um, the first one that we published on back in 2012 was a trading house based in Singapore called Olam. Tomasek has had to bail it out repeatedly. Um, they did get the last laugh. I mean, this is one that went up uh, because Tomasek tendered for the shares. Um, but then uh, when we look at, we also looked at Noble Group, which was Hong Kong-based, Singapore-listed uh, commodity trader. And the funny, the interesting thing there was, you know, with Olam, we looked at it and we saw these level three fair value gains. And, you know, we were just, you know, just as suspicious of those as we are of Burfords and um, maybe even a little more so. But what we saw with Noble is Noble didn't have a lot of level three uh, net fair value gains. Their fair value gains, which were highly aggressive, were level two assets and liabilities. And what that taught us was that it's actually much easier to be aggressive in your valuations and manipulate these valuations than we had assumed. You know, we'd assumed that was something that was almost the exclusive purview of companies that were that had level three assets and um, and liabilities. But it can be done quite effectively and aggressively in level two. So that so again, getting back to Burford, when we saw that there's this company that has a substantial component um, of fair value gains produced by level three assets, um, you know, period in and period out. That's that's a real red flag to us. And you couple that with the management's um, repeated pronouncements over the years that it should be valued as an operating business, it should be valued on a PE basis as opposed to book value. Um, was also, I mean, that just makes that red flag scream even brighter, um, in my view. Because the, because the E element is essentially just a matter of opinion. Right. I mean, the E element, right, it's being driven entirely by the, by the models that they spin. And yes, if they said, well, you could value us on book value as well, um, and, you know, that's a reflection of our models, sure, but they get, you know, if you slap a kind of typical... You know, PE multiple on an E, they're getting more leverage out of that than you would out of a typical price to book multiple. So um, yeah, it just there were a lot of red flags. You named some of them, um, but really, that's you know when when we see any company with that kind of consistent component of profit coming from fair value gains, then you know we're you know we're definitely interested. One one of the uh, uh, criticisms levelled at you by uh, uh, the head of your fan club, uh, Mr. Roger Lawson of Sharesock, uh, is that you uh, didn't bother running your thesis past uh, Burford. Uh, and had you done that, uh, he charges that you would uh, not have made a number of the assertions that you did. Well, I have three things to say to that. And I'm not really sure in which order they should be stated. Uh, so this is not order of importance. But first of all, we did actually have multiple conversations with Burford's then CFO slash um, wife of CEO, Elizabeth O'Connell. We did not identify ourselves as Muddy Waters Capital. And 
this is common practice for us, and the reason we don't identify ourselves as Muddy Waters Capital is we frankly want to be treated the same as any other investor would be, including himself, um, any other institutional investor. So um, we had these conversations, and as I find is pretty common in markets where there's less required disclosure than the U.S., a lot of the hard questions are answered merely by with them saying, or her, in this case her saying, we don't disclose that. So that's my first response is, we did ask many of these questions. Um, number two, this idea that we're under an obligation to communicate with a company ahead of time, I think is entirely fallacious. Um, the company speaks all the time. Okay? When it speaks, it takes the form of filings, press releases, conference calls, slide decks. So this is us having... Re the, the retort in these conversations that the company, that are basically very one-sided in favor of the company. So the company speaks all the time. I reject the idea that we're under an obligation to um, you know, give them an opportunity to try to weasel out of um, a problem they've created with their disclosures, lack thereof, or frankly, you know, to lie to us. Um, you know, I'm not saying that Burford necessarily would have lied to us, but we've had that experience before where, especially if a company is a fraud, I mean, what, you know, what are they going to say to us confronting them and saying, we think you're a fraud? Well, they're just going to lie more. So who cares? You know, we don't, you know, there's no reason we need to do that. The third thing is, I would also point out that Burford never ran its responses to us by me before they published them. So... Shouldn't this be a two-way street? Indeed. What about, I mean, the thing is, you have your view on Burford, but uh, I see on Twitter, just before we came out, uh, some chap saying that uh, uh, Liberum Capital, uh, Burford's broker, had produced a, was it 67-page or 90-page uh, buy note? Incredibly detailed research. And uh, they think the shares are worth 26 quid. 26, sorry, for an American listener, 26 pounds sterling. Um, uh, surely the company's broker, Librem, they must know something, don't they? Oh, I mean, they certainly know where their bread's buttered. Um, I don't know if that's too American an expression, but I mean, they no, know no, that no, they're no, not no. going to make money off us, and they make money off their, you know, their client, your, the the listed company. So, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, it's no secret, and I, it does. Sometimes I don't know whether to laugh or cry when we're in one of these um, entanglements with companies and our critics cite the sell side. And, you know, it's just, I mean, the people citing the sell side and um, holding that up as rejection of our, our theses and our work, I mean, they have to know that sell side research is usually no better than toilet paper. Um, Probably not even the good kind of toilet paper in most cases. Um, but to that, I'd also say, well, look at Canaccord. Canaccord has two very sharp analysts who really don't seem to uh, take a positive view uh, on Burford. So, you know, if you want to show me your cell site analyst, I'll show you mine. And, of course, the difference is that Canaccord is not uh, a retained broker of uh, uh, Burford, whereas Librem is. So Canaccord won't earn a cent from the any placings of stock in the market. 
uh, any bond issues or any corporate retainers, Libra and Will? Or am I just being cynical in pointing that out? Well, right, and and look, I don't think that's the sole. Uh, I don't think that's the sole issue here. I mean, I don't think that you know, even if Canaccord were um, earning fees from Burford, I don't think that you would see these analysts putting out positive uh, research on Burford. Um, but you know, the, and that's and and that's because the, the pool of sell side analysts is generally people who have either self-selected or been selected because they're not going to be critical of the companies. And that's, quite frankly, that's the way this model has to work. I mean, research on the sell side is a cost center. Okay, so how do you make money off of it um, as a bank? Well, it used to be overt where investment banking paid the, the, the salaries and bonuses, and these analysts were there to support investment banking clients and support investment banking deals. Everybody got, you know, it was a little bit too overt, um, you know, uh, in the internet bubble. And so the banks had to settle and say, well, gee, okay, we'll create this Chinese wall. I think everybody knows that the Chinese wall exists usually in name only. And, you know, most people who want to express their opinions with integrity most will not choose a career in sell-side research because there just isn't room for many people to do that on the sell-side. I think we should, just for uh, in the interest of balance, uh, remind ourselves that uh, when uh, Kevin Ashton was asked to put out a buy note on the great fraud Quindell by Canaccord and refused and said, I want to put out a sell note because this is a fraud, uh, they sacked him uh, because they uh, thought that wasn't what analysts should do. Um, Moving on, I mean, we, 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 to, back to Burford. Um, there has been talk from Burford, they've got their poodles in the uh, uh, Deadwood Press, to run stories about how the regulators are looking at you, they're considering legal action. Are you worried? In one word, no. <laughs> um, but to be a little bit more expansive. Um, Not at all. Um, Companies hem and haw about this all the time, um, obviously, but, you know, that they were able to drop a letter in the mail to the regulator, um, in my view, does not constitute in a real story. But, um, you know, I know news, it's been a slow news month in, um, you know, during August um, in the UK. So, uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm not impressed. And by the same token, I mean, we've we've interfaced with regulators numerous times over the years, and um, I mean, our record is that six companies uh, that we shorted have been delisted as a direct result of our research. Um, one company has been suspended for almost five years um, as a direct result. Another company entered into a fifty-five point six million dollar settlement with the SEC after um, its officers uh, took the company private with the help of uh, private equity. And then several other companies have been investigated by the SEC, Department of Justice, or other regulators for fraud or other abuses. Oh yeah, we also had the, uh, the indictment of the uh, principal of Zhongwang Aluminum, uh, which we had written that um, report pseudonymously for uh, reasons that have to do with uh, 
caring about our personal safety. But um, that was some years ago. But uh, anyway, so we we obviously interface with regulators, and I just gave you the results of um, you know a number of those interactions. So I'm not concerned about us. I'd be more concerned about Burford in this situation. Which is as we revealed on share profits being investigated by the FCA. Is um, there is actually data out there, isn't there, that uh, companies that threaten to sue short sellers during bear raids. Uh, a, nearly always they don't do it because they know disclosure would be a complete nightmare for them. Um, but B, their, their shares underperform uh, long after the bear raid uh, uh, goes away. Threatening to sue is, 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 is threatening to sue a critic is, is a red flag. Yeah, you know, it, look, it's it's a red flag, especially if the criticism. Um, appears to be well reasoned uh, and grounded in reality, but um, you know the the thing that I'm fond of saying about when I've actually gotten sued um, versus when there've been threats or I thought that something carried a high litigation risk, it usually happens in situations in which I feel like it's low risk or we're past the point at which there is risk. Um, the first time I've sued was by Sinoforest, which uh, was the first, you know, the company we're probably best known for. Sinoforest sued us nine or ten months after we published the report. It sued us for defamation in bankruptcy court contemporaneous with its filing of the bankruptcy petition. So that was, so that was just strange. Um, and, yeah, we've never gotten to a point... Um, where we, well, actually, it was only very recently, I should say, that we got to a point where uh, we've ever had to get into any discovery um, process with with a plaintiff. And ironically, the one which we're going through a discovery process is related to Zhongwang um, Aluminum, the one I talked about, that where the Department of Justice recently uh, criminally indicted the company and its management and proxies for evading uh, 1.8 billion U.S. of tariffs um, over uh, over the years. And that was a scheme that we un we caused to unwind by the publication of our uh, report. Um, and, you know, ironically, that's the case that that's the lawsuit that's gone the furthest against us. And I think that's a function of it being in California state court and, you know, different rules of civil procedure, but, you know, this, this lawsuit will be gone, I'm sure, in the not-too-distant future, but, um, yeah, you just, you just never know. It's, it's really the ones where it's completely ridiculous that end up turning into lawsuits, in my experience, as opposed to the ones yeah, where it's just moderately ridiculous. To date, have you lost a lawsuit? No, 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 no. <laughs> right, let's go back to Burford. We, uh, one of the things which uh, 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 we have focused in a lot on share profits is this Napo case, uh, which Burford, in a rather dishonest way, says was a trivial amount of the business they've written since listing, but they ignore the fact that without it, they would have reported a loss for 2013. With it, they reported a profit, and just two or three weeks uh, later, they launched a massive bond issuance. Um, the thing about Napo is... Uh, when the profits for Napo were booked, Napo was insolvent, or effectively insolvent. So it, I, I think it's fair to extrapolate that's the case. I mean, we don't have any, because Napo was not publicly traded, um, we don't have the financial data uh, for the company as of the end of 
2013 or 14. But we know that as of, uh, because there were disclosures, um, you know, when Jaguar acquired it, um, we know that as of 2016, it had negative net worth of, I want to say, 54 million approximately. So, and it was basically one drug company and that drug was not selling. That's why it was um, evidently, probably why it was in these uh, arbitrations and litigation with um, some of its uh, counterparties. But yeah, I mean, I, I feel comfortable saying that there is not a non-Chinese or non-corrupt bank on the planet that would have loaned Napo and Nickel as of the end of 2013. The, so the company is fundamentally uh, uh, insolvent. We can debate the uh, the extent of it, but we know it had negative net assets, huge negative net assets, and was burning cash and had no revenues, which isn't a good place to be in. Uh, Burford claims that it was entitled to book $30 million of profit, but reflecting the fact that Napo had one or two financial difficulties, it only booked $15 million of profit. If you or I had been the auditors, if we'd been working at Ernst & Young, I think we would have said, hang on a second, you can't recognize any profit against it. You've got to impair this 15 million completely. Well, so that's you know a... We should do, is that's a ver- Well, that's, see, that's a very interesting point because it gets into um, what level three fair value assets are uh, or this concept of you know level three versus level two and uh, level one. And when it comes to level three... Um, Auditors are extremely deferential to management judgments. Now, I don't know the inner workings of Burford's audit, and um, we, yeah, and it's an it's such an esoteric asset class anyway. So um, we can only guess. But my my best guess, and we have a former auditor on our team, and so we've we have discussed these things internally. But my best guess as to what the auditor is doing is when Burford changes an input in the model um, and it spits out a different valuation, is the auditor just looks for some confirmation of there having been an event that can support a change, but not actually looking at the reasonableness of this, of this change. So if the case survives, for example, if the case survives uh, a motion to dismiss, and Burford then changes an input in the model that the auditor would say, okay, well, we just want to understand why, you know, what, what event transpired that caused you to change this input. Oh, survive motion to dismiss. But they're not going to look at the probability, the projected probability of winning, um, the projected time to collect. Um, yeah, you know, and I mean, I suppose... I mean, it, you know, it seemed reasonable um, if we were if we were saying, "Listen, you know, I'm I'm financing your company, Burford, and you're financing these guys, and I really want to understand what the counterparty risk is here." You know, we would obviously get into how creditworthy uh, uh, Napo is, but I don't know that that's actually the auditor's role in this situation. Um, it should be. They should be showing what's termed professional skepticism. If you've booked a big profit and you are owed a material amount of money, and it was material to the 2013 results, surely there has to be professional skepticism applied. Well, you know, the term professional skepticism is thrown around a lot, and it's it's also thrown around um, 
in the uh, in the research profession. Um, I think the CFA Institute um, I think uses the same phrase. And as we discussed a few minutes ago, very few cell site analysts are dually skeptical. Uh, maybe that's what professional skepticism is. It's a level of skepticism that's sufficiently in check so that it doesn't imperil your earning ability. But um, you know, with auditors, uh, you know, it's auditors have a miserable track record of detecting fraud, um, especially when fraud is carried out by senior management. Now, I'm not saying Burford's a fraud, but it's the same. It's the same issue. The auditor is not vast, vast, vast vast majority of investors do not understand what the auditor's role is and the limitations of audits. You know, they're not there to, quote, sign off and say, this is clean. Um, management prepares financial statements. Auditors are at their most effective when they're looking at whether accounting policies have been applied properly. But when you're in an area of valuation that is as subjective as level three is, the auditors have to be very deferential to to management, um, and that's. I mean, in a if we if we were dealing with management, if we're dealing with a world in which managements were not incentivized to be aggressive and people always acted in good faith, this would make sense because the people who'd be passing judgment, if they weren't deferring to management's valuation judgments, I mean, you're saying, okay, well, who has a better view of what the asset is worth? The person who's an industry and subject matter expert, i.e. management, or the auditor who, you know, what they do is they review documents and they don't really understand how litigation works. Management um, who wants to ramp up profits, to ramp up the stock price so that in the case of Burford, they can sell 50 million sterling worth of shares. Well, see, that's the real world in which we live. And that's why the problem with how audits are conducted and the problem with accounting standards and assuming that people are acting in good faith, you know, we just live in a time and place. If there's ever been one that one that was materially different, I don't know, but we live in a time and place where people often aren't acting in good faith and all of this rests on Pollyannish assumptions that don't hold value in the real world. But that's you know that's why I've I've made the point numerous times that at least in terms of protecting investors from fraud there's a real argument that investors would be better served by uh, no audits of public companies because in many instances, I feel that audits serve to provide a false sense of security and allow investors to just be lazy about looking at um, what's really going on in companies and, or the financials. And, um, and the reality is auditors are not there to be shareholders, guardians, or friends. Um, they're there to collect fees and you know perform a tick the box function um, uh, which is why uh, sam antar says uh, the annual report should just be considered as a marketing document for the shares yeah that uh i think that's a fair i think that's a fair character characterization of the way that a lot of companies approach them uh and approach being public can we go back can we just go back to napa again the crystallization event which allowed Burford to report a $15 million prof on it, profit on it. Now, we finally established, as a result of Burford putting out a response to, I can't remember whether it was a response to a response to a, an article we did or something you did, 
uh, it turns out it's this Glenmark case. It just The crystallization event was that, Berf, that Napo lost that case. Right. So lost that case. Might... It had to pay out cash. It didn't get a cent back. And on the basis of that, uh, Burford says, quote, I think the phrase was, winning isn't really isn't everything. Uh, and it marked it up as a profit. Right. right. So I guess just to try to nutshell the, the history of your, any of your listeners aren't familiar with it. When we first published, we said, okay, this Napo case, this is Napo v. Salix. Um, it was actually decided in 14, but Burford was showing it um, as a very successful case um, as of the end of 2013, and it's from 2011. It decided in the first quarter of 2013, so before the 20, but first quarter of 2014, so before the 2013 reports came out. Right, but there, but it's but it's so, but it's showing in the 2013 annual. So it's showing yeah. at the end of 2013, you know, as of December 31st, this is a win. We invested uh, 7.4 million. Um, we're showing 15, I think 15.8, if I remember correctly, um, entitlement or recovery. Um, and then soon thereafter, uh, after filing the annual accounts. Um, Napo actually lost a jury verdict um, in that case. So Salix was completely triumphant. Well, at least, you know, Napo uh, completely failed, I should say. Um, and so there was zero, zero recovery there, zero entitlement. So we pointed that out. And the response by Burford was, oh, you're wrong. There was another litigation. Uh, there was another matter. You know, and that's a typical response of a company. They want to say, you know, they were wrong as often as possible, but they said that without actually providing the necessary information, and there's a good reason they didn't. And that's because the, you know, the case to which the other matter to which they were referring is, I think, even worse than Salix was. And so credit to your reader, Drunken Sailor, for turning this up, but it was a uh, Napo versus Glenmark um, arbitration, and because the arbitration award was filed for uh, judicial recognition in federal court. We understand what the, the basics of what happened there, but um, the arbitration award was entirely in uh, Glenmark's favor. And at the end of it, Napo was uh, liable for costs and expenses um, of Glenmark. And so the, the Glenmark and Napo ended up settling that by saying it'll be $2.5 million dollars and we'll pay it out of the future royalties we would otherwise owe you, which seems like, you know, Glenmark never really got repaid. But I think we can also infer from that. Now, maybe it's not a fair inference, but I, I think it's, it's certainly a plausible inference that when Glenmark agreed that it would be repaid as an offset to money, future monies it would owe Napo, that that's because it knew Napo couldn't pay the $2.5 million. So if Napo can't pay the $2.5 million, then it certainly wouldn't be able to pay, in a realistic scenario, Burford the 15 to $16 million. But that didn't stop Burford, which Burford marked it up again in the 2014 accounts to over $20 million at that point. Uh, and it carried it there until uh, first half of this year um, at this you know, fantastical um, you know, assumed recovery that was just 
you know, way more than they ever got. And the only reason, my view, Burford ever got any recovery is because Invesco led this bailout of the investment by investing in um, Jaguar uh, Animal Health, which, you know, proceeds of that were used to, you know, buy Napo and were earmarked to be sent immediately to Burford to, to repay Burford's cash outlay. Okay. Do we think, because uh, last week on Share Profits, I revealed another company, Epicenter or something like that, uh, another case which uh, Burford booked as a profit, but quite clearly didn't have a cat in hell's chance of getting the cash in for, for many, many moons. Do we believe that there are possibly other cases like this where the uh, profits are booked, but the recoverability is at least somewhat suspect? Yeah, I, I think that's a very reasonable assumption to make. Um, unfortunately, Burford, in its disclosures, uh, does not distinguish between um, recoveries that it's actually received, those that it's about to receive, and those that are, you know, theoretical to um, unrealistic. Um, but I, you know, one of the things that is, I think, telling about this. Um, I'm sure you caught the uh, the fun reporting by the FT on uh, the sex tape, um, Burford and you know two of their um, you know uh, two of the people with whom they've dealt before. Well, it was actually really interesting because if there's if you piece it together with a Wall Street Journal article that ran I think in 2017 that profiled uh, this executive at Burford, Daniel Hall, who ran their asset recovery unit. So Daniel Hall is. Um, the person who at, at Burford supposedly uh, obtained a sex tape to try to, you know, looks like tr try to use that perhaps to blackmail um, somebody named Harry Sargent um, against whom uh, Burford had, well, one of Burford's clients had a, had a claim. Um, it was interesting because if I recall, in the Wall Street Journal article, it said that as of 2017, um, that Burford had spent $9 million trying to recover um, this on this claim and that the value to Burford was approximately $12 million. So if my memory is correct, and I, if anybody is interested, they really should go and double-check my, my you know, recollection here, but if this is roughly correct, you're talking about a relatively small profit here of $3 million, um, on top of nine, that's, I mean, that's one third, but I think the costs between when that article was written and when it was ultimately resolved probably increased, just given the timeline. But when you spread that out over the number of years, it's not a great return on the capital. And it also allegedly led Burford or Burford's executive to blackmail with a sex tape in order to get repaid. And this is against a judgment debtor who resides in the United States and who has business interests and assets in the United States. So if it is this expensive, this hard, and frankly this debasing, uh, to recover assets against a – to recover a judgment that was duly issued against somebody who is so U.S.-centric, I mean, how much more difficult must that look like in the rest of the world? So it really makes me think that um, a lot of these, you know, recoveries that Burford, you know, is entitled to um, are, are really theoretical um, at best. 
What do you think, Ham? I know you, you say that you are looking at the past of Burford and things that it's done in the past which are uh, uh, worthy of examination. But what do you think happens next with Burford? Uh, well, I mean, I've noticed one thing. How much the company reports in profit and pays out in dividends, it only manages to do that by uh, issuing more and more bonds on the bond market and occasionally equity. Um, so it's, it's borrowing to pay the dividend. It doesn't generate any cash. Is there going to be a problem for it at some stage? Well, um, <laughs> I mean, look, if we're correct in our understanding of what's really going on in, internally, um, it becomes a big problem for it at some point. I mean, does does Burford, um, you know, does Burford have that problem sooner rather than later? I think that's going to depend on investors' willingness to overlook uh, these issues and the lack of substantive response by the company. Um, Burford certainly fighting for investors to, you know, overlook these issues, and Burford's trying to confuse investors, but. Yeah, eventually, uh, I think, you know, I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I think it'd be very hard for Burford to dig its way out of this. I mean, um, you know, if they if they can play for enough time and, you know, get another Peterson type of case, you know, maybe it, you know, it, it bails them out. But the, you know, my view, as I've articulated, is Burford is sprinting on a treadmill and it's taken all these fair value gains in the past. And I think it's deploying capital in a less than selective fashion just to grow its book so that it can take fair value gains um, to replace ones that, had, that have already been reported and not make it look like they're, they're no longer growing, you know, air quotes, profitably. So in that instance, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm correct, I mean, I don't, I don't see uh, absent, an ex absent just extraordinary stroke of luck for Burford I don't see them escaping uh, this. Um, Is so, there a yeah. case of the Stevenson case? I know they've booked gains on it already, um, but it, but it's in Argentina, isn't it? Where where, where they have seem to have one or two. Wouldn't wish any bad fortune on on the Argies at all. Uh, let's not mention the Falklands, but um, they seem to have one or two economic problems there. Yeah, well, I'd say their their biggest problem ends up being uh, political um, because the economic problems. Yeah, I mean, look, Argentina is on its way to, I think it's, well, it's selective default. So I guess that technically is its ninth uh, default um, in since the start of the 20th century, I believe. So the credit rating is now triple C, as I understand it, um, on the, or that's the issuer credit rating. And that's down from, I want to say, double B just maybe a month ago. So there's a very good chance that Argentina, particularly if Fernandez wins the election, which um, everybody assumes he will, um, that Argentina will not want to make, will not agree to make Burford whole um, on uh, on the Peterson case. I mean, I think that's a that's a fairly reasonable assumption. But um, look, there's there's a lot to there's a lot to it. Maybe maybe I should say the reasonable assumption here is that that claim is worth a good deal less um, than where it, you know, where people thought it was worth, what people thought it was worth on uh, as of June 30th of this year because of the political turmoil in Argentina. So it could hit it hard, but it's just possible uh, that the Argies could kick it, uh, could knock it for six. 
if that doesn't happen, somehow it go, manages to move onwards, your fundamental assumption is that uh, Burford is one of these companies that needs to keep uh, just bringing in more business, growing to keep the plate spinning. If somehow it finds it hard to do that because it can't raise capital in the bond markets, uh, then uh, there will be no more fair value pro uh, profits booked and profits will go into nosedive. Yeah, I mean, that, I, that is, I think, a, a reasonable assumption. Um, well, the other thing is, even if it can raise capital, um, you know, I, I don't know much about the new CFO. Um, and my assumption is that... He's not he, shagging the, uh, the CEO, though. Well, I mean, never say never, right? But, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. Um, but the, I, I think it's a fair assumption that he's a company man. Um, so if that's the case and, um, he wants to continue, he's okay continuing with Burford's accounting, then, um, yeah, then, you know, Burford might violently and, uh, hit the wall at some point, possibly sooner, possibly later. But what we have also seen a number of times over the years is even without personnel changes, um, internally people just get uncomfortable. Uh, with continuing to be so aggressive in accounting or business practices and start to dial it back. Um, that, that's always possible. I mean, if that happened with Burford, I, I think, you know, if they, they decided to be more significant or substantially more sober in their assessment of um, fair values of, of cases, I think it would be catastrophic for the income statement. But um, so I think there'd be a lot of pressure not to be more sober um, about the valuations. But by the same token, if um, the new CFO or presumably there are other people involved in the accounting finance department um, in the valuation process, maybe the auditor starts pushing back and saying, look, you know, we do have limited room to maneuver here as auditors, but we're not comfortable with this. You know, I mean, if they start trying to, you know, if they become less aggressive, um, that I'm, I'm sure there's going to be concern internally within the people who are responsible for this as to whether they can maintain the level of aggressiveness um, that they have in, in the valuations. I think there's going to be internal conflict. If they and announce a change, there would, of course, be an initial bloodbath in the shares. But there is a business there which, if it accounted like its peers, like IMF Bentham, could get grow, albeit from a reduced base. Well, yeah, but I, the problem here, of course, is the debt, um, <laughs> and that's you know, and that that's really, I think that was a cardinal sin um, taking on debt to try to lever the book. Um, so, yeah, I I think, you know, even even if you know, if I if I were ever qualified to be CFO of a company, I would really not want to be sitting in that chair right now. Okay, even if you didn't have to shag the CEO. Now, um, there was a, another uh, aimlessly company which you were short of uh, a little while ago, Blinks, which we also, uh, I got lawyer's lessons from them. Um, they actually did uh, amend their ways, didn't they? They were exposed by Ben Edelman for uh, doing some really very naughty things, and they, they, um, they changed their ways. Having lashed out at Edelman and accused him of being a crook, uh, they got rid of all the bad businesses. Right. Well, I think also, you know, I think, look, who, I have no idea what went on internally, but, and also in the relationships with uh, Blinks' customers, but I think that exposure basically ended the game. 
um, could not continue to uh, treat it could not continue to treat its customers and charge its customers uh, for this traffic that was so obviously um, or had been exposed as as being artificial traffic. So I don't know that they said that there was an internal come to Jesus moment in that case, as opposed to externally driven by the by the clients. Um, so that one, you know could have been uh, a, you know, maybe it was atypical in that it wasn't so much internally driven. But, um, you know, I mean, also there was, as I, as I recall, there were several people who were um, autonomy uh, founders or senior executives that were involved in this. And, you know, I personally have a pretty low opinion of uh, autonomy. Um, but, you know, also of HP for, you know, buying it when <laughs> I think a lot of these issues were, were you know, were clear. Um so that makes me feel like, uh, you know, it wasn't wasn't Blinks deciding that they wanted to be better people and make the world a better place when they changed their, their practices. Okay, two uh, general questions, and then I'm going to wind up. Uh, the first one is, um, you see, you were short of Blinks. Uh, you were short, you're obviously short Burford. Um, uh, given that, uh, you know, you're looking on a global perspective and the AIM Casino is a relatively small market, uh, it does seem to me that the AIM Casino offers you fairly rich pickings. Yeah, well, it was actually looking at some AIM-listed companies back in 2014 that really got us interested in, in Europe and thinking that there could actually be something thematic uh, with Europe, whether it's continental Europe or the UK. But, um, I mean, we, we looked at Africa Minerals and, you know, stuff that was on page two, page three of the search returns and, it was such a ridiculous company, and we thought to ourselves, well, you know, there's probably nothing here that investors don't already know, you know, like about Frank Timmis or that they can't see through the $25 million fuel theft excuse. But um, then the heroin trafficking. Started, what's that? The heroin trafficking. Yeah, the heroin trafficking conviction. and But then uh, Alphaville started publishing on African Minerals, and it just started falling apart as though investors didn't know these things. And the same was true Gulf Keystone. I mean, I think this guy was an American CEO and, you know, yeah, I think it was a tiny, tiny office or a virtual office, even if I remember correctly. But, um, you know, and he was effectively stating that they had access to like, uh, I think a trillion dollars in reserves in, uh, in Northern Iraq. And BP. Yeah. Yeah, and it just, you know, I mean, the, the problems there were obvious, we thought, and then the air ended up coming out of that one, too. So that plus, those two plus blinks really made us feel like, God, you know, it, it's surprisingly, like, I, I don't have high expectations of the work, the amount of work or effort that it, most investors are going to put into, you know, checking out or diligencing investments, but it made me feel like the level of diligence that goes into aim traded investments and well i'd say the same true of continental european investments and maybe even you know main board of lse um just way too low and lower probably than the level of diligence you get in the u.s um, although to be fair u.s has a lot more disclosure too talking of poor due diligence my final question is um have you heard of a fellow called neil woodford <laughs> I should have a poster of him on my bedroom wall by now. Um, 
He's sort of like Debbie Harry in the 1970s. He offers you so many opportunities to sort of get excited. <laughs> yeah, no, he's um, he's a good contraindicator. That's the conclusion we came to uh, several years ago internally. Do, do you think he's just got a bit unlucky? Or um, what would you think is the root of his problems? Just picking crap stocks? Well, I I don't profess to be at the same level of Neil Woodford scholarship that you know, which you are, but, um, you know, I think the, I mean, I, look, I'm willing to grant and I haven't really looked at it, um, you know, closely, but I'm willing to grant that he was good as a large cap value stock, uh, picker. Um, you know, maybe there were issues with that, but, um, I, like I said, I haven't uh, dug into it, but, um, I, you know, I, I feel like maybe he just started uh, drinking too much of his own Kool-Aid and thought that, uh, his skill extended outside of outside of that to you know anything he wanted it to you know whether it's uh, technology you know speculative technology companies biotech companies um, you know, and I, I don't know I, I guess the reason I believe that narrative has to do with what I saw um, in the you know in the earlier part of this decade with Chinese uh, China-based stocks. Where, um, yeah, I forget the guy you guys uh, sent out from the UK. Uh, he was with Fidelity. He was a well-regarded fund manager. I think also large cap value. Came to Hong Kong, set up shop. You know, as the second coming of investing Christ, and um, just got smoked by Chinese fraud after Chinese fraud. And I feel like it was the same sort of arrogance uh, where you know they just thought well because I do this well I can apply these skills to areas that are entirely different um, so I don't know maybe that's a overly kind interpretation of what drove Neil Woodford um, into these crevices initially but um, yeah I, I think he's he's played valuation games and um, in a way he's keeping you know he's been trying to keep the plate spinning um, with uh, you know with these valuations too so and you know, I think he's had, you know, some collaborative help from uh, Mark Barnett. So, um, you know, but I, like I said, I'm, I'm no great scholar on Neil Woodford, but uh, I admire him for giving us a couple of good shorts anyway. <laughs> That's very good. Okay, Carson, it's been brilliant talking to you. Uh, we'll speak again soon. All right, enjoyed it. Thanks, Tom. block doesn't mince his words does he i would follow up on one little uh, point which we discussed there which is when companies respond to those of us who criticize them with threats of legal action i need to go and dig out the study but there was a study done uh, of the share price performance of companies who threatened their critics with legal action and those who actually went ahead and issued legal proceedings against their critics. I can't remember which was worse. Was it the former, those who merely threatened but didn't go ahead, or those who actually did take legal action? I can't remember which group of shares did worse, but both groups materially underperformed the indices, not just during the course of the bear raid, uh, but for many years afterwards. 
good companies do not need to threaten legal action because good companies will merely let the numbers do their talking for themselves. It is only bad companies that go down that route. My friend Simon Corkwell, better known as the Bear Raider Evil Knievel, uh, once commented after yet another company uh, threatened him with legal action uh, with the uh, comments that when a company behaves in this way, it is not just sensible to short their shares, uh, it becomes uh, the moral thing to do. Uh, it becomes it's an open invitation to add to your position. If I look at the companies that have threatened either myself uh, or share profits with legal action over the years, very few have actually gone ahead and taken legal proceedings. Uh, the shares of all the companies that threatened us with legal action have been serial dogs. Some have gone bust. I think of the nomad and broker Daniel Stewart and, of course, Globo. Uh, they have gone bust, uh, the latter being exposed as a wholesale fraud. In fact, I think the former was too. Uh, others have merely underperformed massively. One thinks of Quindell uh, and Blinks uh, and quite a lot of others. I also uh, remember there was one company which didn't uh, threaten us with legal action. Its CEO merely reported myself and my colleague Nigel Somerville to the police for harassment. Uh, naturally, the police uh, told him not to be such a silly boy. If you run a public company, you deserve to come under some scrutiny. Uh, but it goes without saying that shares in the company which he ran uh, went south in a big way uh, thereafter. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed the whole of this podcast. Uh, I will be back with another podcast in a week's time uh, where I still can't remember who my guest is, but either this week coming up or the week after, I should have Gabriel Grego, the man who finally brought down Globo, uh, on as one of my guests. And I have another a number of other inter uh, entertaining fellows to interview and a woman to interview over the coming weeks. If you can't wait that long uh, for another podcast, well, why not sign up to Share Profits? It costs just five ninety nine a month. Uh, there's a daily podcast from me, my Bearcast, uh, where I look to comment on frauds, uh, liars, and uh, the odd company on the AIM Casino, which is run by someone who is vaguely honest. And Share Profits serves up another nine articles every day. Uh, exposing the liars, the promoters, the fraudsters uh, who uh, uh, dominate the AIM market here in London and also operate on the standard list of the main board. It only costs five ninety nine a month, uh, money well spent, hugely entertaining site and ideal for avoiding uh, the money traps uh, which litter the AIM casino. Anyhow, I shall be back in a week's time with another podcast. If you're too tight to fork out 5 99 I'll be speaking to you then. Man of all, let's stop your dreaming. Can't you 